Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Palmer bet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Aussies only. Thanks to GLG Green Life Group. Leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. Hello and welcome to Aussies only. It's your host, Jed Zetzer, and today I bring you a special edition of the show with Michael Legazzo. We dive deep into Michael's tennis journey and his life, from his playing days to his coaching days, coaching Australia's Zoe Hives, hitting with John McEnroe and Steffi Graf. Michael dissects it all. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Before we get into the tennis side of things, where did you grow up? And tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, so I'm a Melbourne boy, born in Melbourne, grew up in Melbourne, um, spent my whole life pretty much here other than when I was traveling and a couple of years living overseas. Um, grew up like everyone else, loved my sport. So I was, you know, you'd find me outside playing cricket, playing footy, playing tennis against the wall, um, anything and everything that involved the ball, I was there. Um, pretty much didn't even see the inside of my house for a lot of the days growing up as well as at school. And then when I was eight years old, dad just took me to tennis lessons one day, um, not expecting too much. I just went there. I liked it the first time, went back again. And then, you know, out of that, I, I grew a love for the game and just wanted to get out there and just loved hitting the ball. Um, I remember the first time I went to a lesson it was uh, an old place called Burt's Indoor in Mulgrave. Um, there was some indoor courts, just in, you know, out near a bunch of, of warehouses and stuff like that. And just grew up there and I was having lessons every week. Not long after, I broke my arm. So that took me out for a couple of months. But, yeah, just loved playing and started playing comp, started playing um, all kinds of different things. And it was probably from there that I sort of, put everything else aside and, and just love the game of tennis. I just wanted to play. I just, um, and still here today doing, doing what I love, which is, which is, you know, something I'm, I'm blessed to have still. Going back to sort of the start of your journey, do you remember, it's something that's tough to remember, but do you remember the very first time that you picked up a racket? I do. I actually remember going to buy it. We went to Danny Nong, we went to a sports store and I bought one of those Boris Becker junior rackets. Um, still remember it to this day and remember going out and looking after it and thought it was the best thing I ever had because uh, it was the first real bit of sporting equipment that I'd ever got and I remember going out there and using this racket because I remember it was about the time it was 87 so it would have been just after Boris Becker won a couple of Wimbledons and he was the, the big thing going around so I remember going out on the court wanting to be like him diving, doing all kinds of stuff um, but I just remember going out there and 
just picked it up really quickly. It was it was just a game that I picked up. I had good hand-eye coordination, so I picked it up really, really quickly and just didn't want to leave the tennis court. I remember going there on a Saturday morning for lessons and I'd be there, you know, my lesson would go for maybe an hour and I'd be there for three, four hours. Like I'd just go on another court and I'd be hitting the ball or I'd hit against the wall and I'd get home and I'd be hitting. And I just did not want to stop hitting balls, you know, and I, I remember those lessons so clearly. I remember the people in my lessons. Um, I still remember their names. I still remember it. So it's one of my most vivid memories actually is my first lesson. Um, and my coach, who was my coach all the way through and, and still to this day, um, we catch up and we talk. But for me, it was, it was I guess it was something I, picking it up so quickly and being good at it, it was just something that I had this real passion for. Um, I love the feeling of hitting the ball. And I just wanted to get out there day in, day out. I'd go home and I remember as a kid, I'd you know, make pretend rankings and I'd go out on the wall and I'd be pretending I was a certain player playing against someone and I'd have drawers set up. I had a whole tour. <laughs> like I full on had this whole ranking system and just everything just revolved around um, tennis. And, and I had this dream of being a pro. You know, I, I can even remember watching Pat Cash and Burn Force at, 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 in the Davis Cup. And I remember, I think that was the match that lit the fire for me that said, no, I want to do that. And I just day in, day out, I just would get out there and, and just want to play. I, it's all it's all I can remember from my child is getting out, hitting balls. It's amazing that a specific match set the flame to, you know, that was when you realised you wanted to become a professional tennis player. But do you remember a specific moment when, maybe you came to the realisation or someone around you came to the realisation that you actually had the capabilities to do it, that you were actually better than just the average player? Do you remember, was there a specific moment where it sort of, where it clicked? Yeah, for me it was, it was under 10s. I was playing the Milo Masters, which was a state tournament where your coach would nominate you to play in this tournament. And I hadn't played a lot of tournaments um, and even when I did, um, they were, you know, lower level tournaments, um, you know, I'd, I'd lose early. And then it was this tournament, I made the semis of this tournament and it was then that I thought, oh, no, I might be okay at this thing. And, and my coach encouraged me, but it was, it was definitely that moment where I thought, okay, there's something here that I might be okay at it. Um, I still remember the venue, it was out at Royal Avenue in Sandringham and I just clearly remember it. I mean, I lost in the semis. I think I lost love and love in the semis and walked off crying. But I, I do remember that it was the first big state tournament that I did well in and I had this gut feel that, yeah, no, I, I can actually be okay at it. And so from there, I, I actually wanted to train more. I wanted to enter more tournaments and I really kicked on from that tournament. So it was around when I was 10 going into 11s and 12s where things started to pick up for me. And I had that confidence that I can actually do okay. So for your junior career from 10 through till 18 or so, who were some of the, the best players that you came up against? And what are some of your fondest memories? Because I guess for most people, even those who go on to become a world number one, for example, everyone remembers their junior days. Um, and some people, you know, reflect on their career as their junior days, as their fondest memories. Talk a little bit about, you know, those, those five or so years and some of the people you met along the way. 
yeah, I, I'm definitely one of them. My fondest memories are from juniors. The most enjoyment and the most fun I had, you know, throughout my tennis journey were in, in juniors. Um, just meeting different people, you know, going overseas, different cultures, but just also the social aspect, I think. Um, having so many of us want to have, have the same dream and want to do the same thing and have something in common. Um, even to this day, my really close friends are all from tennis so, and, and from my junior days. Um, so with my junior career, it was probably around 12 where I really started to kick on. Um, I was always probably around, you know, three, four in Victoria and it was in my I remember making the state team in 12s where I was the number three player. And it was probably a couple of months after that where I really started to kick on and, um, you know, ended up being ranked one in Victoria and started doing really well in tournaments. Um, and then going into the following year, which was my first experience going into state, playing national tournaments at, at really, you know, 13. Um, and I was okay. I was, you know, not highly ranked um, in Australia. I was probably, you know, around... For, for the you know birth year 13 so I was probably around you know 10 11 and then once I played 14s nationals um, in January I made the semis of the leading and the nationals and then we won the teams event that that's when I really developed some confidence that I could um, do really really well and then I made the Australian team in 14s um, world junior teams and won nationals in 14s and that's probably when I started to believe that um, I could maybe make a career out of it and, and really work hard and be a pro. So I upped my training, um, my goals changed, and I really spent a lot of time focusing on my tennis. So while schooling was important, tennis became the number one thing. It was all I wanted to do. Um, and then going through that, I following year did pretty well. I started to go overseas a lot more. 16s, I spent a lot of time overseas. So in played the World Youth Cup in, in the Australian teams and also spent, you know, six, seven weeks in Europe playing against the best juniors in the world my age. And that was a real eye-opening experience for me. Um, it was my first experience playing a lot of these top players. And, and in that year, some of the players I played were, you know, I played Fernando Gonzalez, I played Ivan Lubacic, I played uh, Marit Safin, um, you know, Xavier Melis. These were the types of guys that we were playing against. And not only were we playing against them, but they also became, you know, people that I, I started to know, friends. Um, and to this day, I still have contact with some of them. Um, so they were the kinds of players I was playing. And then back in Australia, we also had, you know, my age, we had Peter Luchak, who, you know, we grew up together in, in Waverley squads, who probably did the best out of all of us in our, in our birth year. And then you also had someone like Leighton, who was a couple of years younger, um, who was playing nationals a couple of years up, who I'd played. Um, in, in nationals and then you know going forward playing you know ITF duties I played guys like Nicholas Kiefer um, and the Bryan brothers I played in doubles so a lot of those kind of guys were my peers and, and the players I played against and I just remember going especially to the 16s trip was an eye-opener for me because I then started to realize that whilst I thought I was doing pretty well in Australia I saw what the standard was overseas and for me for a split second, it was, I had to take a step back and I go, well, it, it made me start to doubt whether I was really good enough to do this and came back, worked harder, um, but really had a realisation of what it really took um, and what the standard was overseas. Like some, a lot of the players that 
were in my age group, like, you know, Karlovich was another one. Um, top 100 players, top 20 players, top 50 players. Um, and I think, it, you know, for me, it would have been awesome if I could have more experiences against them. But I only got that one trip overseas. I would have loved to have done a lot more, but didn't have the opportunity to. But they were the kinds of players that I grew up with and um, had some success against them. But, you know, going forward, uh, probably didn't transition as well as what they did for different reasons. But, yeah, it was, it was an unbelievable experience for me um, going over and playing against them and then actually seeing what they did later on um, is, that, is actually pretty cool is to know that you grew up with them, you played against them, you competed against them. Whilst you didn't get to that level, um, you, you actually take a little bit of pride in the fact that you were on that journey as well. Um, and you know you go in different paths which i have but i look back fondly on those those times and the fact that i actually had that opportunity and, and at least gave it a crack 100 percent. i think it's crazy because i was actually looking through the players that you played and some of the names there are just i mean even the couple that you that you played later on like michael lodra Paolo Lorenzi, do you remember these specific matches? It's crazy. It, it must be crazy having played these guys who have gone on to go deep in slams, top 20 players in the world. Do you remember specific matches or is it just too I, I do. No, I do. I do remember those ones. So I remember playing Lodra in Belarus. Yeah. I remember very vividly playing that tournament because I remember, I think I was in... Uh, I think I might have been in Lithuania the week before and we decided uh, it was over the border. We'd play a tournament and then I remember going on the bus there and looking at the travel guide and it was telling us basically not to go there. Um, that was the worst place in the world um, at the time. Um, so we went there and I remember playing him and and it was interesting because the winner of that tournament was, was Mikhail Eugenie as well. He was there as well playing that tournament. But I remember playing Lodra in the quarters, I think it was, um, at that tournament, I remember playing. Um, who was the other one you mentioned that I can't remember now? Paolo Lorenzi. Oh, Lorenzi, yeah, that was in Italy. That was towards the end when I was starting to give it away a little bit. I do remember playing that one as well. Um, and another guy I played um, was Jako Niemann. I went for, whilst I was playing club tennis, and he would have been 17 at the time. I was, I think, a year older, and we played like three times in three weeks. Um, I was had like as well. three yeah. hour matches. Three-hour matches we were having. I, I clearly remember those kind of matches. Um, and for me, it was it was looking back. I, you know, part of me also is envious of what they did and that I didn't get to that level. But also knowing that you know it's it's a long journey. It takes a lot of things that need to get to be right to get to where you want to get to. But having those experiences of playing against some those players and stuff I use today in coaching. Um, and I can pass on to my players and the things I learned from them, even at that level, um, such as the professionalism, um, the way they went about it. So, and I remember someone like Lodros going to that tournament. He was, you know, 10 levels above everyone else in, in terms of his professionalism and how he prepared. And, and, and back then we probably didn't have the knowledge we have now, but he was doing things that people are doing nowadays. So, you know, I learned off them even at that level, even when before they got to you know, top 20 or, or top 10 in doubles as he was and, and, and Grand Slam level. So it was, it was a great experience. I wouldn't change a thing. Would have liked to have done things differently um, if I had my time again. But I think you learn. I think you just do what you know at the time 
and I did the best I could. If I knew better, I would have done things differently, but I'm trying to instill that into my players now, um, all those experiences. I was going to ask you about what you can take away from those experiences, but um, sort of further going into that, when you played against these guys, so when you come up against, you know, Michael Lodra or Paolo Lorenzi or looking through, there were heaps of players that you, you were playing against that ended up making the top 50 even. Would you say when you played them, when they were at the same level as you, whether it be, you know, in your juniors or early um, pro career on the ITFs, would you say you knew at that point in time that when you played them, yeah, this guy's going to go on to be top 100? Is there something, because we speak about all the time how the margins in tennis are so small and often, you know, you can be at the same level as one of these guys and then little things go their way. Could you tell at that point in time? With some players, yes, you can. I, I think for me, the thing I look at is that X factor and that point of difference that they have over everyone else. So we look at like, as I said, with someone like Lodra is the level of professionalism was completely different to everyone else. Um, so you, you almost, he had a presence about him of the top 50 player, even though he would have been younger and ranked, you know, six, 700 in the world or whatever he was at the time. Um, so with some of them, yes. Um, someone like Lorenzi, I didn't think so at the time. I thought, yeah, he was okay, but I didn't think anything special. Um, and then going back to juniors, as I mentioned earlier, someone like you know Marit Safin, yes, absolutely, playing him. And, and Gonzalez was another one that I really noticed it with, that he just had this massive forehand, this, this energy and presence about him. Um, absolutely, like this X factor. I think the one thing I noticed with a lot of them is they were confident in themselves. Um, it was almost this belief that they were going to make it and you could see it. Um, Whereas I probably didn't have that. I probably respected, you know, players who are ranked higher a little bit too much, um, whether that's coming from Australia also and being so far away um, from the level that you go over there and you, you just automatically, you know, think they're better than what they are um, because we don't have that level of competition here. But they just had a presence. They just had a point of difference, whether it's game style, whether it's it, it was it was mental, um, you know, like even someone like, you know, Marit Safin, I remember when I played him and he was intimidating. He was a little bit intimidating. He, he was, there was a, I wouldn't call it arrogance, but there was a cockiness there that, you know, there's no way this guy's going to beat me. Um, and so you notice that and, and I can clearly remember a couple of years later him beating Agassi at the French and watching it. I go, well, I just played this guy, you know, two years ago and, and see where he's at and see where I'm at. And it does stand out. And, you, and even to this day, like, coaching you know kids I coach or plays you see elsewhere they just even plays that are on the tour now that I've seen traveling at tournaments there's just something about them that sticks out that you just go I, I just know this play is going to be good absolutely and and when you sort of look back at those times now and you mentioned before I was going to ask you about how this helps you with your coaching even though the game has changed so much in the last 10 or so years do memories from back then still help you to this day when you're coaching your players now? Can you draw from those experiences? Yeah, absolutely. I think you can draw from any experiences. Um, I think you adapt them to the now and adapt them to how the world is different. Um, you know, we've got technology now. We've got all kinds of different things. Um, players are different. Kids are different. So we adapt to... Um, 
how things are now. But at the same time, there's still some fundamentals that stand the test of time uh, that players need and that um, that we need to make sure we instill in them. So my, you know, memories such as um, how to deal with travel, you know, different cultural differences, um, you know, different opponents, the gamesmanship, all that kind of stuff has not changed. That's that's remained the same. So there's a lot of things that make up being a tennis player other than hitting balls and playing a certain opponent and tactical and mental and all that kind of stuff. But when you're, especially coming from Australia, being so far away, I could tap into a lot of those things that I learned from my journey, um, even things that um, from a, a training and and, comp- and and schedule perspective when I was younger that probably led me to burn out a little bit. Um, how to avoid those same mistakes and knowing how long the journey is, um, what I can, you know, instill in them that will, you know, hopefully help them avoid those situations. Um, but, yeah, there, there's there's still things I draw back on from when I was, you know, playing juniors. You know, my experiences even playing, you know, from 12, 13, 14s all the way up to 18s is, is I've experienced, I feel like I've experienced everything that, you know, the juniors I'm coaching are going through now. Nothing's changed. So I can, I feel like I have that ability to to tap into what they might be feeling, what they might be thinking about certain things and, you know, tournaments coming up or, or you know, pressures from outside and how I can help them get through it based on my own experiences. So I think everything I've learned as a, as a player, um, both as a junior and trying to, you know, give it a go on, on, on the pro tour, um, is all used now with all my students, whether they be juniors or whether they be, you know, someone like Zoe, who's, who's you know, a pro player. Absolutely. And we're going to definitely speak about Zoe in, in a few minutes. But just before we do, when did you first realise that you maybe would consider or wanted to go into coaching? Was it, was it while you were playing? And if so, did that possibly bring the end of your playing career forward a little bit because you were sort of desperate to get into that coaching space? Yeah, I, I, I think I sort of fell into coaching a little bit. Um, I probably I would have been – I stopped playing early. So I stopped really playing around 21, maybe 22 was my, my last year. And I was burnt out. Like I, I was fried. Um, I played so much in juniors and and – went into and I and I remember when I was 18 I traveled for six months on my own like I just packed up and left probably I played club tennis in Germany and then just traveled around you know Europe on my own with some other players um and thinking now you know some sending an 18 year old over now on their own um you know having to do everything you know flights schedules making sure I had enough money um all that kind of stuff so there's a lot of pressure um to not only play but also make sure that I could actually survive on my own and without the internet now to be able to contact parents and and FaceTime or Zoom or anything like that, you know, I do things such as I'd be in Hungary one day and I'd end up in Cairo three days later, spur of the moment, and call my parents from Cairo and they had no idea I'd gone there. So it's just crazy stuff and I think it wore me down. So I never, I always thought that, no, once tennis is done, it's done. So I went back to uni, um, did a commerce degree um, for three years. Halfway through, I probably thought, no, this is not what I want to do. So I was trying to figure out, you know, what it is I wanted to do. 
Um, was doing some part-time coaching. So my coach had some kids and I was helping out there. You know, I'd, I'd do a little bit of coaching at Melbourne Park, um, even in some of the, the state squads. So I was still involved and I was playing pennant, um, but I'd, I'd lost that passion. Like I really lost that passion. And I think those first couple of years after I stopped playing were really, really hard. Um, but I remember the, the, the time I knew that, my playing days were over was I was in Germany um, playing club tennis and I was, I, I was riding home and had an accident, landed on my hand and I, I broke my hand. And I remember the doctor telling me that your hand's broken, you're going to be out for eight to 10 weeks. And I was relieved. I thought, oh, great, I'm just going to pack up. I'm going to go to, to Italy to see my, my family in the mountains, in the middle of nowhere, no TV, no one can talk to me. And I was actually relieved that I didn't have to play. So I, I knew then that, yeah, no, I'm done. And I tried to play. I was getting injured, and, but I was deep down, I was just fried. I just had enough. Like it, it, was, it was done. And I sort of fell out of love a little bit with the game, like even coming back playing, you know, pennant matches, I just didn't have that competitiveness anymore. So I sort of lost my way a little bit with tennis and I wasn't intending on playing tennis or coaching at all. Um, finished my uni degree and then I went overseas that next year, did some travel. And I remember it was the start of 07 and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And then out of the blue, and this changed the course of probably definitely my career, but of my life also. I got an email from a guy in New York who had a tennis academy offering me a job as, as a head coach out of the blue. Didn't even know who it was. And what had happened is a coach that I knew in Germany had recommended me. Um, and I looked at it and I thought, well, there's worse places in the world I can be. And I probably felt like I needed to, to just get away and just start afresh and, and find myself a little bit. So I just did it all, got my visa, packed up, went to New York with nothing and started working there. And I was there for two years. And whilst I was there, I started to develop that real love for the game again and was learning a lot. And I thought, yeah, no, this is what I want to do. Then came back, start of 09 and started working at, you know, MCC coaching down there. And I was still playing pennant and, but coaching was definitely where my passion was again for tennis and I just wanted to learn. I had a thirst of knowledge. I just did everything I possibly could to learn and just grew and started coaching some, some kids down there and, and it sort of grew from there. Um, so my coaching journey started by chance, um, just from an email from a guy in New York offering me a job. It's crazy how, how an email like that can change your life. That's amazing to listen to. I just want to ask, sort of speaking about your coaching now, you, you spoke about how you just got completely burnt out by the age of 21. Do you take the experiences that you lived through and the, that you endured, do you sort of keep that in mind when coaching today to try and maybe ensure that some of, your, some of the players that you coach don't go through the same thing where they hit the age of 21 or maybe, you know, their mid-20s and they burn out. Is that something you're consciously keeping in mind when coaching? Yeah, definitely. Like, it's, it's something that's that's big on my mind. Like, I, I, I always go back to my experiences. Um, 
And I, I think what happens is sometimes people are in too much of a rush and they're trying to do too much and they don't allow um, the player to, to grow at their pace. And there's a lot of comparing to others and, you know, so-and-so is doing this and we need to be doing this. And I, I, I look at everyone individually and where they're at. And some are going to be more mature than others. Some are going to be physically more developed. Some are mentally more developed. Um, and, and also their background. So I, I need to get an awareness of where they're coming from, you know, what their cultural background is, um, the mentality of that and, and the pressures that they may be dealing with because of that. And then that then you start to formulate what, each individual needs and and you look for warning signs so as i said earlier um everything that they would experiencing um i've experienced as as a player so i feel like i can get on top of it earlier i can see the signs um you know i can see the burnout signs definitely or when they're overtraining. um you know in terms of behavioral stuff and and, and attitude stuff and even the way they talk to me i can i can see it um, especially when it's not in their nature so you start to see different things and start to try to figure out um, why things are happening. And I always go back to why. You know, if, if there's behavioural stuff, why is it happening? You know, there must be something else that's triggering it and that's, a, that's getting them to do that and try to help them help them through it because it's part of their, their development as well. Um, but I definitely do tap into my experiences. Um, and, and it's a long journey. And this is what I... I the message I give to a lot of people is if I've got a 10-year-old, for example, who comes, I say, well, the plan is for your child to play for the next, you know, if they're going to be good enough, 25 years. And we've got to build the player to be able to last that 25 years. And I think that the, the danger sometimes is when, especially with the juniors, a kid starts to do well and then the expectation grows, particularly from family and they have a bit of talent and they sort of get a little bit too far ahead of themselves and i think you've always got to know where you're at and what stage of the journey you're on and then adapt and then you know you may have to increase things or you may have to pull things back um, i know in the past i've had to pull things back with with good players because if i kept going we would have broken that player and we needed to manage them through a period to be able to get them through onto the other side um and it's difficult for, for the player and the parents to hear that sometimes, but all I feel like my role, I have to do that and I have to be honest with them. And if I'm not, then I'm doing them a disservice. Um, so it's not about me in the end. It's about making sure that player reaches their goal. And it's, you know, you're not going to please everyone all the time, but all you can do is your best and, and hope that they understand where you're coming from. Absolutely. And for some of the coaches listening who might encounter possibly a tennis parent or a player who is just steadfast on going all in and, you know, having a different approach, what sort of advice can you give them? Because as you mentioned, you can see the signs early when a player might be heading towards burning out or even just sort of losing their love for the game. Well, I think you've got to just be honest I think that's the one thing I would say is you've, you've just got to back yourself in what you believe and be honest with that. And so I think once you start trying to, um, you know, be dictated by someone else and it's not what you truly think is right or what you believe, I think you're, you, you're heading for trouble. Um, and, and as a coach, I think it'll frustrate you. So I think you've just got to stick to your to your guns as what you, what you think is right and what you believe. And 
the one thing I've always said to a lot of coaches is you've got to be prepared to let a player go if they don't trust in you. Um, because I think once, um, I, I think it's got to be a, a coach player thing first and foremost. And then anyone outside of that who is sort of going against the grain or thinks you should do something else, I think, you know, I, I, I've learned that, you know, parents especially will do no matter what you say, they'll do what they want to do anyway if they think a different way is right. So I think you've just got to be true to yourself. And if you believe something, just be honest and, and also tell them why. I think it's important to, to go through the reasons why and, and, and what can happen and what it can lead to and, and the direction it's heading rather than just say, you know, you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that. I think people need a why. Um, but always also listen to the other side and, and their thoughts. I think that's really important rather than discount everything because I think sometimes you can find a common ground. Um, and I know for me in the past, I've had conversations with parents and whilst I've had this strong belief about a certain thing, I've also um, compromised a little bit and modified my thinking um, to, to find something that's suitable for everyone. Um, and that I'm content and happy with and still feel like we're going to do the right thing for that player. So I think it's it's got to be a team effort um, led by the coach. It's got to be led by the coach and, and driven by the athlete, but led by the coach. And I think at the end of the day, if they don't trust you and you, your um and value your opinion and what you think's best for their player as a coach, then are you the right coach for that player? Um, and I think you've got to be prepared to walk sometimes mm. and, and stick what you believe in. It's some great advice. I think the coaches listening can definitely take that on board because it's something that I think a lot of coaches might struggle to deal with because it's, it's just a really difficult position. You spoke earlier about Zoe Hives. Now you've been coaching Zoe for a number of years now. Do you mind just sort of starting off with how you guys met and how that arrangement came about? Yep. So I was coaching at MCC and we were putting together an Asia Pacific tennis league team. Um, we hadn't had a women's team for a long time at MCC and it was something we wanted to do. We had a men's team that was quite strong, but we never had a women's team. So I went and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go and get some of the, the better juniors around to, to come in, give them an opportunity um, rather than get some more established players. So we had one experienced player and we brought a whole bunch of juniors in, Zoe being one of those juniors. So at the start, it wasn't, it was just a case of her coming to the club. Um, I um, hit with her occasionally, so nothing, nothing major. She was playing tennis for the club and I remember she was playing, leading into a bunch of tournaments and, and they asked me just to hit some balls with her, see what I think, this and that. Um, I didn't think too much of it. Um, we had a couple of hits and I think she enjoyed it. And yeah, we just started working together from there. And um, we had a chat. I remember we had a chat. We sat down at Royal Park. We had a long chat for probably two, three hours. She was very lost in her um, tennis journey right there and then. I think she was about 16 or going on to 16 and she wanted to quit tennis. She'd had enough. Um, so I spoke to her and we had a long conversation, you know, what her goals were, what I thought, this and that. And I said to her, look, if you want me to help you, I'm more than happy to assist you. Um, I mean, she was going to quit tennis. Um, she'd had enough, totally had enough. And, and I said to her, my goal for her was 
first and foremost, to rediscover her love for the game, um, which she had lost. Um, and at the same time, she wanted to be a pro and, and I had a look at her game and I said, look, these are the things I would want to work on um, and, and give, build your game so that you can at least have a crack later on. Can't guarantee you anything, so I'm not going to sit here guarantee your rankings or anything like that. But they were the, the two goals that I had for her. Um, and I can say at the, at the start, she probably looked at me a little funny. She <laughs> didn't really trust me totally. So it took me a while to gain that trust with her. Um, and, and those knowing Zoe would know that she's a very loyal person um, and, and trusts people close to her. So I had to gain that trust, which I, I think I have now. But, um, yeah, first and foremost, it was making sure that we didn't lose her to the game, which, which you know, and that took, you know, 18 to 24 months before we really got her thinking that this is what she wanted to do. Can I ask, and you, pro- you may not have an answer to this, but when you first saw Zoe play, what were your honest thoughts on what type of a play could, you know, she could become? Did you think, okay, she could become maybe top 500, maybe top 100, maybe top 10. What, what did you think when you first saw her play? Not what you think now, but like that initial yep. feeling. Yep. And I, I remember, and this is one part of the conversation we had, and I said to her, with your game as it currently is now and as it will develop, I thought you're not going to really get any higher than, you know, 300 in the world. I said, that's about going to be about your limit with the way you're, you play right now, with the way you hit the ball, with, you know, game style, all that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, I thought there was something there to give her a shot to go higher. So she, she, the way she hit, um, you know, her groundies, particularly her forehand, um, I thought there's something to work with there that there's a, we can create that into a point of difference. I thought game style wise, um, you know, being more aggressive and, and taking things on and, and which has been a challenge because, and, and matching up her, the way she wanted to play and the way we wanted her to play to her personality. So we had to match them up a little bit, which weren't, and then physically developing so she could play a game um, that we wanted to play. So it was, yeah, my honest feedback to her at the time was I don't think you can get higher than 300. And that that might have been tough for her to hear because she was, you know, ranked in her age group, you know, the top couple. But I thought that she needed to develop her game a lot more to have a crack and, and go higher. When you look at from where she was and you look at she's already, you know, eclipsed that top 300, she's obviously had her had her off-court issues, suffering, you know, with injuries and different things over the last few years. When you sit here today, and it's obviously very difficult for you to answer because you are coaching her, realistically, what, what, is, what is the immediate goal? Because as, as you've just mentioned there, I mean, things evolve. Um, initially, you said top 300. You've already managed to get her further than that. As you sit here now, what's sort of that next goal for her, whether it be a rankings goal or possibly even just to be fit for a year, do you guys sort of have, have that next goal planned out? Yeah, we do. So she's, um, unfortunately, the last couple of years have been tough for her. Um, not so much injury, but illness. So she she was get, she got to her highest ranking, which was about 140 a couple of years ago. So it was, it was 2019, the year 
she won around at the Aussie, uh, played qualies at the other Grand Slams, had qualied, you know, won rounds at a tour event, won a doubles title uh, on tour as well. So she was having, starting to have some success. Middle of that year, she started to get sick and um, it wasn't until later we discovered that she had glandular fever um, and she was playing through that. So that set her back and then, you know, as she's recovering from that, we discover that she has uh, like a, a blood circulation disorder called POTS, which, you know, threw her around a lot. And it's, you know, two years later, she's thankfully fully recovered from that. And we're just trying to get her back um, playing, having, you know, a few setbacks here and there with injury, um, just, you know, trying to push her a little bit to get her going. So our goal at the moment is to stay healthy, is to play 12 months um, uninterrupted. Um, we might get some niggles here and there, but it's just to get her back playing consistently. Um, I'm confident that if she's back on the court playing um, consistently, that the tennis side will take care of itself. Um, she's actually hitting the ball better probably than she ever has, but just can't get out on the court long enough. And so our goal definitely is to stay healthy and you know also change the narrative of of her and her career of, of, of having these setbacks and having the injuries and, and getting her back, um, feeling confident that she can go out there and actually play the way she, she wants to play. And I'll, I'll give her credit after, you know, two years out, she's still more determined than ever. You know, I know many players would have probably just packed it in by now after all the stuff she's gone through, but she still wants to do it. She still wants to learn. We're still trying new things, doing, um, you know, different things all the time. And there's definitely unfinished business. Like there's definitely, we haven't, I don't think we've actually ever had a clear run at it. Um, so I've sort of said to her, well, whilst you want me here and, and I know there's still stuff we need to do, I'm here, I'll help you. And, and so that, that's our goal for her is stay healthy and we don't have a rankings goal or anything like that. Um, but it's more about staying healthy and playing a certain game style that is of a higher level player. And, and she's working on that and, and we've got a lot of work to do, but um, we're up for it. Mate, it's exciting listening to you talk about it because you can hear the excitement in your voice and, and, and the belief. Just one last one for me. I know you're a humble man, but how proud are you that when you first met Zoe, she was thinking about giving up the game at 16. Fast forward a couple years later, she's gone through some extremely unlucky illnesses off the court, two years without playing. and Coming off all of that, she's now more determined than ever. How, how proud are you that, you know, obviously she's had a lot to do with it as well, but you've had a significant um, role to play in changing them, that mentality. Oh, very proud. I mean, for me, it's, it's, you know, you hear it a lot, but it is actually about the journey and, and what you go through with the play. So when I, you know, someone like Zoe is, is and with all the players, it's, She's on a journey, but I'm actually on that journey as well. It's a journey for me as well. So I've learned probably more coaching Zoe and working with her than anything else I've ever done. Any education, any courses, any, you know, stuff I've done as a player, I've learned more, not so much on the court, but off the court, uh, working with her than, than anyone else, which I now put into practice with every other player that I work with the stuff that I've learned, the stuff that we've gone through, the transi transition stuff, 
the emotional stuff, the mental stuff, the, you know, the, the illnesses, the injuries, you know, how to mentally manage all that. I've learned more working with, with her than anything I've done in my tennis career. And I'll, I can sit here and say that I'm the coach I am today actually working with her. If I hadn't worked with her and gone through those experiences um, and wanted to learn more about different things, I wouldn't be um, the coach I am today. So, you know, in a way I have to thank her for that as well. But she's she's grown a lot as a person. I think that's the thing I'm most proud of is that the player's one side, but seeing her growth as a person from where we started, um, even from a couple of years ago, to to now um, and i think the time off has given her the opportunity to to really grow as a person and to discover um why she's playing um who she is as a person who she wants to be as a person so i think that's the thing that i'm most proud of because when we go out on the court now it's it is more fun you know we we have a laugh we 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 joke around where we probably in the past we we, we couldn't have and it was a bit too serious but i think being more comfortable in herself is the thing i'm most proud of and which is why i'm confident that if we can get her healthy and get her out there um you know i feel like we got to 140 with all the obstacles and i want to see what happens with no obstacles and see what can be done um and that that's the thing that's and whilst that's there um that motivates me to still, you know, keep working with it. Absolutely, mate. Well, as I mentioned before, it's exciting listening to you get so excited talking about it because I agree she got to that 140 with all these obstacles and now if you can get her, you know, fit and healthy again, just 12 months on the tour, we see what Dash is doing at the moment um, over in the States. It's exciting. It's exciting times. Michael, just before I let you go, one last quick one. What is the coolest sort of tennis memory you have maybe someone you've come into contact with a little fanboy moment anything like that something not as serious that that you remember fondly that's a good question i i don't know if it's cool so i got a couple of things but I, I think look i think one of the the best experiences i had was being steffi graf's hitting partner at the ao in 96 and i remember meeting them at the Como Hotel and, and having breakfast with them. That was the first time I met them. <laughs> was just that is awesome. going there. And, and so that was the cool thing. Another, I think, I mean, there's a couple. Another one was when I was living in New York, um, John McEnroe would come in and hit with a lot of the pros at the, at the club, a lot of the coaches. And I also had that opportunity. So I got the opportunity to, to hit with him, play a set against him. Wow. Um, there so that was surreal like standing on the other side and seeing that service action and trying to pick it and it was that was that was pretty cool um so that that were two that i that probably stand out for me is having been able to to have those experiences and look and if i hadn't you know played tennis and and gone through everything i've gone through i probably would never have had those experiences so that, that that was pretty cool and just to see that they were just normal, you know, normal people and treated you with respect, treated you normally. And, and that's also something I've probably learned is no matter who you are, what you've done, um, at the end of the day, you're still a person and everyone deserves the same respect that you give to everyone else. Wow. Well, I must be honest, mate. I did not expect 
to get those answers, hitting with Steffi Graf, John McEnroe. That is just incredible, awesome experiences, and you're very lucky. I think everyone listening in has been able to take a lot away from this chat. So, Michael, I really appreciate it, and thank you so much for joining me today. No, thanks for your time. Thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Legazzo, what an incredible chat. I really appreciate Michael joining me. If you'd like to get in touch with Michael or find out more, head to michaellegazzotennis.com.au or head to Instagram at michaellegazzotennis. An incredible journey, an incredible man. Once again, I thank Michael for coming on the show and I thank you all for tuning in to this week's edition of Aussies Only. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win it. G'day, Mike Hussey here. Get on board Australia's best fantasy cricket game, KFC Supercoach BBL. It's fun, free, and easy to play. Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005.